If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, this is Eddie Doyle, Kim's show, and I have the honor of speaking on behalf of Kim today, who is currently traveling on business, and we have Aaron Rose. It's going to be a great show. Let's keep all of your loved ones safe online by learning today how to stop threat actors from getting into any part of your uh, digital devices. So, Aaron, dear friend, we are in fact colleagues, ladies and gentlemen. This is wonderful as it happens. And so uh, let's get right into it, Aaron, because the evolution of cyber threats, that's what we wanted to uh, discuss today, right? So let's start with a big picture. What are we seeing in the evolution of cyber threats? Where were they and where are they today? Yeah, that's a, so it's a bit of a loaded question, but I'll, I'll try to summarize. So yeah, you kind of go back to, let's say, the, the mid-90s. And this is actually uh, coincided with Checkpoint uh, being founded by Gil Schwedt, our CEO. So in the mid-90s, you know, we saw, we saw a, a, um, an issue that we needed to address. We <clears throat> basically, as a human race, we had all of these wonderful things called, called computers. And they, they were very powerful machines with a lot of cool things that they can do for us, things to, to make our lives easier, our finances, etc. And we decided to plug them all in together. And that was the creation of the internet. Now, we had to step back and we're like, okay, now that we've, we've plugged these all in together, um, what about the people that don't really have the, the strongest moral compass in the world? They're going to start trying to say, okay, I have my computer. I want to see what's on your computer too. Um, so that was kind of the very beginning of all of this. You know, we saw this and it, you know, it's really progressed quite a bit since then or evolved since then. We saw the anti, or I'm sorry, the virus come about. Uh, so one of the first viruses debuted back in the late '80s and '90s. Uh, so we addressed that with antivirus uh, on the on the network level with the internet and such, and everything being plugged in. Uh, the firewall was created, and actually, uh, Gil Schwedt, our CEO, still holds the patent to this day to stateful inspection, which is the uh, the underlying technology of that. But you know, since those times in the late '90s, you know, we've evolved quite a bit. Um, it's gone well beyond just traditional malware or viruses infecting computers. Now we're seeing not only attacks on our personal computers at home and our data, uh, but also like state-sponsored attacks. So there's been quite a bit of an evolution in the past, you know, 10 to 20, maybe even 30 years now uh, that is, you know, keeping us all on our toes, I should say. Good man. All right. Explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old. What sure. is network security? Network security. So <clears throat> think about kind of going back to that previous example, we've all plugged in, um, you know, our computers to the internet, meaning that they're all connected by this, you know, this underlying fabric. And that's what allows, allows us to communicate so quickly. Now, what you have to do, the, the very fundamentals of, of network security is something called access control that says this person is allowed to access this computer. Um, it's very similar if you think about someone, you know, uh, maybe you're going into a building, a secured building, and they check to see, is your name on the list? Do you have a meeting with someone inside of this building? Uh, so it's kind of uh, almost think of it as like a bouncer or a security guard right. uh, that is, that, that's doing the network security that at its most fundamental level. 
Okay, beautiful. And so, so how do we identify somebody as they come into our digital building? And so, and, and bear in mind, a lot of our audiences are at-home users, this kind of stuff. And so what are, what are they going to do as well as a corporation is probably the same, right? How do we say, hey, my name's Eddie Doyle. My name's on the list. I'm allowed in this building. How, how do we do that in right. the digital world? Well, I'm sure if everyone takes a look at your wallet right now, you have something inside of there called an ID or identification. It's the same thing in the digital world. We have to create uh, your identity in some way. Now, this is the tricky part. It's because, you know, having a physical ID card or something that's very easily verifiable, um, you know, we, we thought that was kind of like, all right, this is perfect. We have these ID cards. We'll always know who is coming, up, or coming into this building or boarding this airplane. Uh, but then later on, you know, people realize this is just a physical card. I can counterfeit this. I can create fake copies. Uh, it's the same idea on the internet as we, you know, we've struggled as a society for a while and there's some great technologies out there uh, now, but we had to create a digital identi uh, identification or ID card or driver's license, whatever you might call it in your area. Uh, so that's, that is a, uh, it's both a challenge and it is a, an important technology that does define, you know, how the internet works and who is allowed to go where. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, in let's say the old days, so pre what 1992 ish, um, you know, well, actually, so what's here's what's really interesting, yeah. the US military's research and development branch DARPA, I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's the DODs or the Pentagon's research branch, they actually invented this thing called TCP over IP. So for the technologists, yes. technologists listening, that was the inception of, of communication. And then Tim Berners-Lee out of CERN in Switzerland turned it into the World Wide Web, right? And then from that point onwards, you're right, that's a good way to put it. We've struggled as a society to you know, identify ourselves in the real world and in the digital world, right? right. Copies get made. Isn't that an interesting way to look at it? And this is, you know, so for the consumers listening, that, that blue check mark, right? It's kind of like that, sort of, right? We're trying yeah. to say, have you got the blue check mark? Are you really Eddie Doyle? There's lots of Eddie Doyles. Are you that Eddie Doyle? Right. So we're trying to put blue check marks on a lot of different things. And I think that, you know, um, as especially as we did internet banking, then it became interesting for, and I think mm -hmm. you were very kind when you described threat actors as people with sort of less scruples. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, yeah. rotten, awful, mean people that want right. to do terrible, dreadful things. And, um, you know, either, either empty bank accounts. Um, actually, let's talk about this, too, because the evolution sure. of cyber threats is the theme today. So, so it evolved into touching what we will call SCADA networks, right? So mm -hmm. critical infrastructures. We'll break that down for the audience in a moment um, so that things can happen in the real world. So it isn't just about your identity and identity theft and your bank account being emptied. Mm -hmm. But now, now, from what, 2005, probably roughly, we saw the Internet was able to do things in the real world. That was the big Stuxnet, mm -hmm. right? So I'm picking on that day. Talk to us about that. Talk about that evolution. It, it became a real-world activity thing with Stuxnet. You could use that as an example, if you like. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So basically what you're describing here is kind of like, uh, I think a lot of people see the Internet as a an entity that exists uh, that enables them, like you said, to, to do online banking or check their health records, etc. Um, they don't really think of the Internet as a physical being. Now, you know, without getting into the technical de details, there are physical uh, you know, things exist, you know, infrastructure, et cetera, that enable the internet to exist. But um, what's 
what I personally, as a cybersecurity, um, you know, expert, uh, as as I'm told, um, be confident really that you are. Yeah. You are. Yeah, Say that right. confidently, my friend. Right. I'm. I'm going to stumble. It's, it's this a up, weird but, thing to own, isn't it? It's right? a weird thing it to is. own expertise. Yeah. You got it, though, buddy. All right, go on. But but the terrifying part, you know, people. There, there's a cliche, you know, question that gets asked all the time in this industry, which is, "What keeps you up at night?" And if someone okay. asks me that, what keeps me up at night is that bridge. Uh, between the divide. So when the internet starts to affect the physical world, and that's what we've seen more and more of, you know, Stuxnet was a perfect example. We were able to, I shouldn't say we, but someone was able to manipulate uh, uh, nuclear, you know, type facilities. And mm -hmm. that alone is scary enough. Uh, but then you start to look at other ways that we're starting to affect the physical world. So anything that is um, automated uh, in the physical world, so whether it's a factory or uh, an oil pipeline or, you know, maybe missiles, et cetera, they all use these, these types of protocols called SCADA. And basically the idea is this is an operational network, so something that affects the physical world. And the idea here is, is that because they're connected to the network, to the Internet, they can be physically manipulated. Uh, that's one example. So maybe you're you know, affecting someone's car that is connected to the Internet. Maybe you're able to make it pull over or change its navigation. Um, but then you also think about factories or the oil pipeline, um, you know, and shutting down oil production across the entire, you know, eastern seaboard for, for quite a few days. Um, right. But then there's kind of another paradigm of thinking about this is like, uh, for example, Costa Rica. You know, Costa Rica was mm -hmm. one of the first times that an entire country was ransomed. Um, they were exploited in a way they had ransomware across I think it was like 36, maybe 40 different agencies. And for, for quite some time, they had a lot of issues with, uh, with healthcare. They couldn't schedule new appointments. They couldn't care for their sick. Uh, they also couldn't collect tax re revenue. And a fun fact for you, Costa Rica was actually the first country in the world to ever declare war against a cyber criminal group. Uh, so, so yeah. you know, there's a, a few different ways that you can think about the physical world being affected by, by the digital world as well. Okay, there's a lot there to unpack, man. You are an yeah. expert, so let's let's break this apart into a lot of different pieces. So, what I'm going to do for the audience's sake, the the technologists listening, you know what Stuxnet is. Let me just let me just do a 60 second review. In in 2005, it was revealed that a virus, a computer virus, had affected the uh, the uh, a nuclear or rather the uh, uranium enrichment facility in Natanz, Iran. Okay. So this is what's called an air-gapped facility. Now, that means there is no pipe to the internet. There's no connection to the internet from the outside world. But people were able to get a virus into the facility, likely supply chain. You mentioned colonial, where you, you were speaking about colonial pipelines. Mm -hmm. That's supply chain. Could be through USB sticks. Uh, could be through threatening somebody and telling them to bring the um, the thing in. Obviously, this is very high stakes games when we're talking about nuclear enrichment. So there's, there's um, yeah, nation state strength involved in this kind of an attack. What I think is, um, I love Shakespeare, right? Tragically beautiful um, about this um, era is that without any boots on the ground, without any, I mean, it would cost a couple of bucks to put this thing together, of course, um, but without anybody getting hurt, Right. One group of people was able to stop another group of people from developing something that could really hurt another group of people. Right. So so this is really interesting to me. Now, in retaliation for that, uh, they call themselves the Iranian cyber guards. This is public information that, you know, this is just me telling 
what happened. So in 2013, the Iranian cyber guards actually took down the, um, it was the uh, Bowman Avenue Dam, just 19 miles north of Manhattan. Now, luck was on our side uh, here in America, right? Um, the sluice gate had been dismantled for repair that day. Aside from that, had it not been dismantled and taken offline for repair, I should say taken offline and dismantled, um, they would have been successful in that attack and caused a flood. I don't know if it's a catastrophic flood. I don't know how big that dam is. But the point is there is a cyber warfare going on. And I find it very interesting that, as you point out, Costa Rica has decided to say, hey, we are actually going to consider that an act of war. Now, Costa Rica, that's a really interesting one for us, Aaron, so I'm pleased you brought that up. When an entire nation's computer systems, I mean, vital computer systems, go offline, well, today, right, that renders a, a nation you're incapable of providing healthcare, you're incapable of providing policing, communication, and support to the citizenry. It is very much uh, like an act of war, but now we, and now this is a very interesting territory here. We move into sort of the cyber law because cyber is such a young industry. It's what, 30 years old, right? 30, 40 years old, cybersecurity. There's very little precedence in this kind of stuff, um, but, but, but certainly uh, we are so fortunate, ladies and gentlemen, to be living in this era where we are building the plane as we fly. So that's a little difficult, I understand that. Right. <laughs> that is hard. But but what an amazing view from the sky. Right. This this Internet thing is um, is just, um, uh, well, truly phenomenal. OK, well, let's let's keep it safe then. So talking more about keeping the Internet safe. So sure. let's pick on the Costa Rican example, because that was ransomware. Mm -hmm. Right. So ransomware. How about you explain? Give us 30 seconds. What is ransomware? Why does it work? Why is it been? And then and then after 30 seconds, why has it been so successful? We've seen so many ransomware attacks. You mentioned that oil and gas. What's interesting about the colonial pipelines is they actually attacked the uh, billings department, like, like collecting the bills. So if you can't collect money, you can't run the pipeline. So right. it wasn't actually against the physical infrastructure in that case, but it, it caused a massive disruption to the physical infrastructure. Okay. What is ransomware in 30 seconds? Ah, good luck, sure. right? And hey, <laughs> buddy, you know me better and you're right on the spot. Well, because there's technologists listening to us and they don't need sure. to hear what you know ransomware is, but a few do. And then why is it so effective? Yeah, so um, ransomware is actually very simple. It's not, uh, yes, the code and the technology that makes it work is very complex. Um, but basically ransomware is something that takes all files, it takes all of the resources. So whether it be you know standard Excel documents and, and information like that, or something much more complicated or complex like a database for your bank, it takes all of that and it encrypts it. So when you encrypt something, um, in layman's terms, you're essentially scrambling it so it's unreadable uh, by anyone that doesn't have the key. Um, so, so the problem here is when you encrypt everything, whether it's a, you know, a business or a government entity or a hospital, uh, you essentially render all of their normal business operations completely inert. They're, they're unable to, to proceed or to, to uh, provide that healthcare or to bill people for oil. Um, you know, a perfect example that happened, or I shouldn't say perfect, but an unfortunate example would be multiple hospitals. We've seen this happen several times in North America where the hospitals will be victims of ransomware and that 
almost completely ceases operations because we live in the digital age. You know, people, you know, nurses, doctors, et cetera, they're not accustomed to using, you know, paper forms anymore. Uh, I couldn't tell you the last time that I filled out a paper form. Uh, it's all digital now. So when you lock down those business operations, whether it's a hospital, a bank, a pipeline, you disrupt lives. Right, right. And for the technologists, listen, I'm a, a particularly interested in conversation about how to help hospitals because they're, they're, not, they're not just vulnerable because we're talking about people who are vulnerable, hurt, sick, diseased. They are vulnerable because it's a very open network, right? You know, it's, it's like you can walk in and out of a hospital. You know, you can put devices, there, listening devices, radio frequency devices. Um, there are so many technologies, the internet of everything, right? So MRI machines, all this stuff online. Um, you've got uh, multiple different physicians using multiple different, you know, mobile devices. And so the opportunity for threat actors is, is pretty ripe. So for the technologists listening, I'd love to continue that conversation in depth. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's very easy. Edwin, Eddie Doyle, Manhattan. I'm the only one that pops up. Um, so, so, right. So, so what to do then, Aaron, right? What to sure. do? Let's start with um, ransomware. What are, let's say, some of the best practices that somebody could do let's say with a reasonable budget, right? What, what, what could somebody do next week, right? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that's, this is a question that everyone's trying to solve, but I'll yeah. give you some of the fundamentals, you know, things to follow, best practices. And a lot of this probably isn't new information. Uh, number one is keeping devices up to date. Uh, this is, in my opinion, one of the most critical things that you can do, uh, something that doesn't require a heavy investment. Keeping things patched and up to date is so critical in this day and age because new vulnerabilities, I mean, just this week and last week, I think I've seen, you know, at least 15 or 20, you know, high severity vulnerabilities that have been detected. So update those devices. And that goes for both the technologists that are on here as well, um, but also the, the home users or people that are, uh, you know, not necessarily working in the technology space. You know, just recently, Apple announced a, a new update for your, for your uh, iOS devices uh, that actually addressed, even though it introduced some cool features, it actually addressed a critical vulnerability inside of the iOS platform. So keeping those up to date is number one. Uh, number two, you need strong security everywhere. Um, so a lot of people think kind of the, in the traditional mindset of, you know, uh, back in the 90s of, okay, I need a, you know, something for network security, so a firewall, and then I need something to uh, prevent viruses, so antivirus. Uh, but we're so much further beyond that now. You need strong endpoint uh, protections. And when I say endpoint, I don't just mean your Macs and your PCs. I mean, these mobile devices that we all carry around in our pockets, because guess what? Sensitive business data exists on this device as well. And not to mention, again, it's in my pocket. So that device, it's here at home with me. Earlier today, it was in the Charlotte airport. It was in the Philadelphia airport. It was at two different hotels this week and all across the state of, uh, of New Jersey. So it's had multiple exposure points, different Wi-Fi networks it's connecting to. And then this same phone came back to my own home network. And at some point when I'm back at Checkpoint's headquarters, it's also gonna be on that network there too. So you need to secure every device that has a digital footprint. So whether it be a mobile phone, an endpoint device, et cetera, um, and then going beyond that, you know, all of the, you know, I was talking about that mindset of thinking, okay, I just need a firewall and antivirus. That's, that's outdated. You have to think about next generation protections uh, and prevention. So something that's really important in this industry, and I think a lot of people kind of overlook this, is we're kind of obsessed with data. We want to see logs. We want to get alerted when there's an issue. Here's the thing, and I'm sorry if I have to give you the hard truth, but 
by the time that you're alerted as an administrator or, or as a, an executive or a chief executive inside of a company, it's already too late. You have to prevent the infection before it actually happens. So having strong prevention technologies for, for these rapidly changing uh, bits of malware, whether it's ransomware or something even more nefarious, uh, you have to have those in place. There's some other best practices you can follow. I think they're, they're pretty well known. You know, follow the principle of least privilege. You know, don't give users more uh, privilege than they need to have it at, at that time to do their to do their jobs essentially. And then make sure whatever devices you're using, whatever security platforms you're using, make sure those platforms can also update. Make sure they can pull down live threat intelligence because you know ransomware, malware, et cetera, it's evolving at, our, at a pace that I couldn't even begin to fathom with my human brain. So you, by the time that you decide to go in and do those manual updates or click that button yourself, it's probably already too late. Uh, so make sure that you're able to, to ingest you know, good, rich threat intelligence automatically uh, without the need for human intervention. You um, you mentioned prevention and detection. Mm -hmm. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is this is a debate that has religious fervor in the uh, in the cyber community, right? And and Aaron put it very well. You know, and there, and the reason is because if you let the criminal in, that's detection, right? And then deal with it. Well, okay, that's 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 one way to go. Is it not preferential to prevent the criminal from coming in the first place? So this is what I say. I say pick your poison. It's either red pill, blue pill, right? You don't get to not pick poison in life. This is just, this is life, right? You know, it, it, we have to stand up with our shoulders back uh, and, 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 you know, carry a heavy weight of responsibility. Everybody has to do this in life, no matter what your profession. And when it comes to your decisions about cybersecurity, it's the same thing. And so I say, Pick the poison of let the criminal in the door and then, you know, all out war, go for it. And then, of course, there's I, I get it. You know, there's segmentation, there's the zero trust network architecture, la -di -da, yeah. Um, better still, I think, to keep the uh, criminal outside the door. But occasionally a friend might knock on the door and you're not going to open it up. OK, well, if it's a real friend, that friend's going to wait there for 30 seconds, identify themselves. And, and that, that we call a disruption in business. I actually want to address that point. It's a really interesting sure. one because what we're ultimately saying in the prevention um, architecture is there will be false positives. Occasionally, there will be a friend that knocks on the door and you think it's a foe, so you don't open the door. I get that. That's a problem. It is a problem, right? I, I'm saying that's a problem. Sure. It's also a problem if you think it's a friend, let the person in and they're an enemy. So, hello, right? So we got that. And so here's, here's the conversation a chief information security officer needs to have with the CEO and the rest of the organization. We actually have a culture problem because it's not yes. a matter of, are we going to have a false positive? It's when we do, how can we as an organization respond to it so that we have the minimal business impact and never experience the same false positive again? Ah, now, beautiful, right? Because that's a conversation to be had with the whole company. I, I liken it to this, Aaron. I've got a few years on you, my friend. And so in the early days of, you know, office work after university, um, you know, Microsoft Office was just kind of being a thing, right? It was very new. And so IT was responsible to help people work with Microsoft Word and Excel. You know, it, it, if you had a problem, you put your hand up, an IT dude came, and IT dude said, this is how you work Microsoft Word and Excel and PowerPoint. Today, IT would never come in and say that. I, I, my 12-year-old knows how to use these tools. 
We're in the same point of evolution in cybersecurity. It sounds very, for those of you who aren't, let's say, um, you know, in the depths of technology, it sounds very scary what Aaron's talking about. It's actually not. Microsoft Word was scary to me when I was in my early 20s, <laughs> right? But today, this is normal, right? You know, we're so much greater educated as a populace. I mean, look what's happened to us in the last 500 years or since the Renaissance. We are so much, we know as much as Newton. I mean, can you imagine as much as Isaac Newton, the average school person gets taught this. And so we have to assume a responsibility of knowledge, right, and behavior so that if there's a false positive, we can deal with it. And then we can also assume the responsibility for great cyber hygiene. Now, I'd actually like to talk about cyber hygiene, but that's a whole rabbit hole. We might get to that into a second because I did want to mention just to, I think, round out the, um, uh, the ransomware conversation. Great story. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, Aaron and I are honored to have a colleague called Dan Wiley. Great guy. Just a beautiful human being who's also damn great at what he does, right? And um, he is the uh, incident response lead, as well as many other things at our organization. And so what happens is when customers experience a ransomware attack or any type of cyber event, um, they pick up the bat phone, I like to say, uh, and they call Dan, right? Dan Wiley. And Dan comes in to the rescue with his team. Okay. Now, uh, when we do this, on occasion, you will be working with, let's say, the FBI, with the local police, because this company, this is a, this is a crime, they've been violated, so we're, we're trying to help them, and we work with agencies to do that. Both the FBI, although we're neutral, but certainly the FBI recommends not paying the ransom, okay, that's their position, fine. We had a particular customer that decided that they would pay. I mean, this is unfortunate, so no, no judgment at all, right? I mean, this, people are managing their lives under duress. We should talk about disaster recovery planning too, because you shouldn't be making your press statement while you're under duress of a ransomware attack. Maybe we'll get to that. Whoa, we've got so much to talk about, my friend. Ah, we're only 27. We do, we do. <laughs> so, so he was working with this particular customer. Um, the bureau was there, and they decided to pay. So they, there was an, guess what? I mean, listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. There was an 800 tech support number from the threat actors so that they could help you make payment in Bitcoin. Yeah. So we, all of us, phoned the 800 number. A, and we know it bounced, because the FBI were there, we know it bounced around Eastern Europe, somewhere around there. So we know that's, that's where the cyber crime syndicate was living. And I'm using those words on purpose, ladies and gentlemen. These are syndicates now, very well organized. And this story will demonstrate that so that you understand the severity with which that you are, um, let's say, responding to this new digital age, okay? So the person who picked up the phone had great English. I mean, I'll joke, better than your telco tech support, <laughs> right? And as she explained, this is what you need to do. She's very polite. This is what you need to do to make the payment. After the victim made payment, they issued a receipt and said, this receipt also acts as a 50% discount coupon if we get you again. I this haven't heard this once in a while. It's devastating. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it's, it's, it's devastating. The lack of scruples, as you put it earlier today, mm -hmm. um, that these, these folks have, it's a business for them. 
right? So, you know, Eddie, actually, I want to touch on that if you don't mind. Go on, yeah, I please. I think that's actually something a lot of people miss. They think, you know, uh, I wish I had my hoodie right now, but they think that the person that's attacking these organizations or stealing their credentials, they've got their hoodie on, you know, they're typing Niche over this keyboard yeah, with cool yeah. LED lights around yeah. them. No, these are corporations. These are yeah. very well organized. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the one of the trends that our research team actually saw was something called ransomware as a service is increasing quite a bit. And basically what this means is that anyone can deploy ransomware. You know, anyone watching this could, and highly encourage you to not, uh, but you can go on the, the dark web and you can actually purchase ransomware. And what, what's crafty about this or unique, you were talking about the 800 number and how professional and how well-spoken this person was, but you can actually ch choose your support level. So, you know, in the enterprise technology space, you know, you kind of choose a support package. Do you get package, or yeah. I'm sorry, do you get support only during the week, you know, for, for eight hours a day or 12, 24, or is it, you know, 24 seven and they have to respond within, you know, an hour. Um, so you can choose your service level agreement uh, to that point. And, you know, I think a lot of people, it's kind of a bit of a misconception. They think, you know, we've just got these, these people in hoodies doing all of this coding and this hacking, but actually mm -hmm. it's a well you know, machine, they have HR departments, they have their own internal IT. Um, so that's, yeah. you know, I think, I think it's important for people to realize that this is much bigger than just, uh, you know, a couple people sitting in a basement. We have a, another one of our colleagues, this is Oded Van Nunu, right? So Oded um, at our head office, part of this sort of research group, we call them, um, did some research on how, how does this corporation get pulled together? We're talking about the cybercrime syndicates. What he found was really interesting. What he found is that there is what he called a kingpin. So somebody who is at the top of the organization, like a CEO, right? Um, and then this person says, mm, okay, well, I need to, um, I need to, you know, I want to break into whatever organization, some Fortune 500 company in the United States, let's say. And so I need a list. So they go and outsource that list from somebody and the arrangement they make, and by the way, this blows my mind, the criminal underground, these arrangements are on a handshake, obviously. It's incredible yeah. to me. So they make a handshake agreement, you know, virtually. One of, some person, one person could be in Australia, another person could be in Eastern Europe, another person could be in Africa, another person could be in Asia. And it's like, okay, I need a list of companies that fit this criteria. Boom. So they get that. The handshake agreement is either I'll pay you for this list, you know, which is probably cheap, a couple of hundred bucks, you know, or you can take a percentage of the crime I'm about to commit. And then the, uh, the next thing I might need, okay, well, I'm going to break into these organizations. So I probably want some kind of phishing email, okay? So then that person, the kingpin, goes out and sources somebody to create the social engineering dialogue on phishing emails, let's say, specific to banking, if, they, if, they're, if they're attacking the banking sector, or specific to hospitals. And then after that, they, and, and go, go, go. Now I need identity access management people. Once we're in and somebody's clicked on a link, I need another skill set, and on and on and on. Fishing. We should probably talk about that. Now we're going to diverge a little bit. So yeah, let's go for it. All right. So if my mind um, is working effectively, 81% of all cyber attacks in 2021 started with a phishing attack. I think I'm right on that. Uh, so that's a lot. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. What is phishing, Aaron Rose? And how sure. do we stop it? <laughs> what is phishing? So luckily, you know, or I sh shouldn't say luckily, but uh, unfortunately, I I'm going to assume that all of the technologists on this call, as well as people that don't work in technology, actually know what phishing is. Because okay. most likely, you're either mandated security awareness training, and even more likely, you've received these attacks. You know, these are the things that, if we kind of go way back 
uh, we'll say like seven or eight years ago. This was the email that you used to get about your, you know, your your distant uncle in, you know, some country abroad. Yeah, the Nigerian <laughs> prince, prince that has his inheritance and wants to give you, you know, some yeah. absurd $137 billion or something. All you have to do is respond with your social security number. Now, I'm going to hope that most people realized that that was fraudulent because it was just so outlandish. Um, but now phishing is getting so much more crafty. They're trying to, you know, essentially phishing means that they are, they are trying to trick you into doing something uh, or to, you know, uh, impersonate another legitimate service. So you might receive something from your, your company that says, hey, it's, uh, it's time for you to change your password. You know, another best practice, you should definitely be changing your passwords at least every 90 days, preferably a bit shorter. Uh, so that's a normal practice. Mm -hmm. But you receive this email and it says your password's about to expire. Uh, click here to, to reset your password. So you click the button, it pops up with that, you know, that Microsoft login screen or Google login, whatever you're accustomed to. And you enter your current credentials and then it prompts you to enter a new password. Okay, cool. Totally business as usual, right? Well, actually what's happened is you've clicked a link that doesn't necessarily take you to Microsoft or to Google. They are impersonating them, but now you've actually given them, you haven't changed your password, but you've given them your current credentials. So now they have a way in. They have your credentials so they can impersonate you and maybe get other employees inside of your organization to fall for it. Um, but then they can also use those credentials to do things like deploying ransomware. Uh, so phishing is essentially an act of impersonation uh, that happens. And we see this in quite a bit of places. You know, we see this in email. Yes. Uh, we also have the term smishing, which personally, I don't like that term, but uh, smishing is the idea of SMS phishing. So uh, messages coming into your, to your actual phone via text message that says, Hey, your PayPal has been compromised or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And you fall for that. So there's, there's multiple forms. Uh, it's all just, you know, social manipulation in, in many ways. I want to um, give the audience a really a, a good tip on passwords because you mentioned changing passwords every ninety days. P from what I hear, people are afraid of that because passwords are so difficult. It's this alphanumeric, and I'm going to use the word nonsense. I mean, it's not nonsense, but so here's the problem. Actually, the chap that came up with and the department, it was a university. Um, uh, I want to say Columbia, but it might not be. So um, they came up with the whole alphanumeric. He wrote a uh, an op-ed as an apology <laughs> for coming up with this. Okay, so listen, here's what happened. In the early days, we, the community, said, oh, we need, we need secure passwords. So using a QWERTY keyboard, all right, create for me, like a competition to academics, let's say, create for me the most secure um, combination of keys you possibly can. So what this team did is they came up with alphanumeric cap locks with symbols and blah, blah, blah. Okay. The human brain doesn't remember that. And so people just wrote it on a stick, you know, they use the same password everywhere. You know, they keep the same password for 10 years. Um, you've got some password lockers and stuff like that. That's interesting to me, right? So it's, it's interesting. I'm not discounting it. I'm not totally bullish on it. So but because the human brain, unlike yours, Aaron Rose, who's a technologist and an engineer, thinking in ones and zeros, dear friend, you probably remember my IP address before my name, but uh, uh, mere, mere mortals, my friend, do not think and remember these kinds of alphanumeric kind of digits. Okay, so how, so how can we solve this problem? The chap oh. wrote the, uh, the op-ed, it's kind of funny, he's just like, I'm really sorry, but yeah, I created the best, most secure way, but because it's so secure, 
people aren't using it properly because it's right. a pain in the butt. All right, so here's what you do. Very simple. Every single word in the English language has a vowel or a vowel sound, right? So here's what you do. A-E-I-O-U. Five letters, that's it. You are going to arbitrarily remember a replacement for all of these letters. So A could be the exclamation point. E could be the hash symbol, right? Whatever, it doesn't matter. You're just simply going to replace five letters. You can remember five for the rest of your life. Okay, and now here's what you do. A passphrase is actually harder to hack than anything else. And you remember passphrases. So because you have to have all this alphanumeric nonsense symbols, what you do is you have a passphrase. Passphrase could be, this is Eddie's password. How many letters is that? I don't know, 15. So brute forcing that alone is pretty tough. But every single vowel, you simply replace with that symbol. And then the beginning of every word is a capital. Bob's your uncle. You're done. Right. That's it. That's how you do strong, secure passwords that are different for every website you go to. Please don't have the same one. You can just replace it that way. Right. Alphanumeric on vowels with capital letters at the beginning of every word and throw, you know, five, six, seven words in there and you're done. OK, that's what we're going to have to do for now. Hopefully, um, you know, the likes of uh, your, you, you, Aaron, will eventually uh, uh, invent uh, like biometrics to get people into, <laughs> into their uh, systems, um, because I think that's where we're going to have to go, right, is the, uh, is the biometrics. What are your thoughts on that? That's interesting. Uh, actually, very interesting. So the reason I say interesting is that biometrics, you know, came about actually rather quickly. Uh, I was kind of surprised to see the adoption. And I think we owe a lot of that to the, you know, the mobile phone manufacturers. So Apple, Google, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, so what's interesting here is that we didn't, we're not actually using biometrics as proof of our, or I'm sorry, we're not using the biometrics as the, the security control. The biometrics are actually just saving your password. So they just, they, they're essentially locking your password. So your password has never actually changed. So when you go to unlock your iPhone, you know, when you do that, it scans your face or your thumbprint. And guess what? That is just a representation of the four or six digit pin that you set as your password. Um, so it's essentially just securing your password. Uh, so that, that kind of gets into an interesting realm that we didn't really solve the problem. We just made things, a, it's more of just like a matter of convenience. Now, I agree with you that biometrics can, you know, take us much further. Uh, but you have to start to question like, okay, what about the technology behind the biometrics? So both face ID, you know, touch ID, uh, fingerprint scanning, et cetera, all of those have been shown that we can actually trick them. Um, so your fingerprint, it's pretty simple. Uh, in fact, if you want to try a cool project, maybe even with your kids over the holiday break, go and uh, do a quick Google search for how to hack a fingerprint using a gummy bear. Uh, because gummy bears, you know, they melt, they can take form and take shape and maintain that. You can actually do that. Now, we have advanced the technologies behind this to, to um, make it harder for us to fool them, but it does exist. Uh, so I, whether or not biometrics is going to be the answer, I don't know. Uh, I think that something has to happen. I'm, I'm a strong advocate of passwords should not exist. Uh, now, what that replacement is, it's going to take someone much smarter than me to, uh, to uh, develop it. So that'll be interesting to see how it, you know, there's blockchain technology, there's all of these new technologies. Mm. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves over the next, you know, five, 10, maybe 20 years. Well, foiled with a gummy bear. I love that, man. That's fantastic. <laughs> and scotch tape, too. You can use scotch tape to foil a fingerprint. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, you've mentioned mobile phones quite a few times. Mm -hmm. 
every time I speak with, let's say, an enterprise organization, um, and even, I suppose, with a consumer, although I speak less to them, um, they don't see the threat. They don't feel it, right? And, and it's been years we've been talking about this. So, well, okay, are, are there actually well-known attacks that have been successful that started through mobile devices? Let's start there. Absolutely. Um, you've probably seen them on the news. Have you ever heard of Pegasus or the NSO group or Quadream? Or um, maybe you can ask our friend uh, Jeff Bezos over at Amazon if it's possible <laughs> for mobile devices right. to be hacked. Right. Yeah, you're right. But, um, but, you know, something that's interesting. Yes, we've seen plenty of cases of this. Uh, we typically don't see the traditional ransomware type of attacks. It's usually just data exfiltration. They want to steal data. They want to listen in on your conversation, steal your contacts, your photos. And then think about all of the information that exists on our phones. You know, our phones, whether we all really want to admit it or not, or whether or not we're proud of it, they do control quite a bit of our lives. You know, my phone tells me when to wake up. It also tells me, right. you know, if I've gotten enough steps in the day, all of my health information all exists there. Um, in fact, you know, Checkpoint Research actually found back earlier, I believe it was in the summer, um, that Qualcomm and MediaTek, which are the two largest mobile chip manufacturers in the world, that uh, their chips actually were susceptible to a vulnerability to where you could send a, a very specific type of audio file to a device and then elevate the privileges. So you could you could essentially take you know an app on a phone that has a piece of you know maybe an audio file which looks completely innocuous, and that audio file would essentially unlock the operating system, allowing that app to access things outside of its typical you know walled garden, outside of its mm -hmm. own resources. So it could look into your phone contacts. It could look into your Facebook and look at messages. Or if you have that password manager maybe sitting on your phone, maybe it could look there as well. Uh, so yes, we've seen very real world examples of this. And I think there's a, a pretty large misconception out there. A lot of people think that, okay, I'm not, you know, I'm not a billionaire that's running a space company and a, and a delightful shipping service that I can shop online. Um, I'm not a, you know, a leader of a foreign country. Um, mm. That's, yes, those are high profile targets. And those are the ones you're going to see on the news you know, all the time. Um, however, there have been multiple exploits and multiple examples of, of the traditional home user that doesn't do anything with technology, that isn't a billionaire or, or, or a president or a CEO uh, that are still getting attacked. Um, because most of the time, these attackers aren't, you know, they're not saying, you know, I want to attack Aaron Rose. I want to attack Eddie Doyle. They're just kind of like spraying and praying. They want to see what right. sticks. They they push all of this out there. You know, it's very similar tactic to you know how Stuxnet net, uh, actually worked and ransomware these days. Uh, they're not always specifically targeting one organization or one person. Um, they're just kind of shooting it out there and seeing what sticks and what information they can gather to you know to reap the financial rewards later on. Yeah, you use the uh, spraying and praying example. Um, this this, ladies and gentlemen, is because there is zero penalty for a threat actor to be wrong. So if you think about it, you bought yourself a computer, a powerful computer or two, right? You've built this little network of horrible people around the world that will work with you to cause harm and you write code, right? And you, and you press enter and these viruses, these um, you know phishing attacks, they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and they'll just keep going forever because why? Electricity, right? So the electricity is already there and it keeps pushing all of these packets around the world until they find a home, until they land on a target. If they never land on a target, what does that cost the threat actor? Nothing. So threat actors have to be right only once. 
Whereas you, the listener, my dear friends, you have to be right 100% of the time. And there is massive penalty for you being wrong once. Now, that's scary. All right. Well, you know, education, uh, the things that Aaron was talking about today. So let's let's talk a little bit about that, Aaron. It's like if somebody wants to learn more about this and, and let's start with your life, actually, because you really are an expert, my friend. Um, how did you derive your expertise? Give us your journey like from, I'm assuming, computer nerd at school. Like go, go, go way back. Where, where did oh, it start? Go way back. OK, so this is an interesting one. I, like to, I, I do like to tell people. Quite a bit. So um, yes, I was a bit of a nerd in you know middle school, high school, and I say that as a compliment to all other nerds. Of course, that's why I use it, buddy. Uh, awesome. It's a term of affection, so, dear friend. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Uh, it's a term of endearment here. So uh, yeah, I was a nerd, and you know, I to be quite honest, when I graduated high school, I kind of lost direction. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wasn't specifically in technology at the time. Uh, went through an entire array that I won't list them all, but let's just say political scientists, uh, pre med, pre med at one point, aeronautics engineering, uh, sales, quite a bit of things. I uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life until I essentially was challenged. Uh, so I was challenged by a previous employer to become you know, more technology-centric uh, because I was working in sales. So I started learning. I realized I had a very strong interest in cybersecurity. I was like, this stuff is cool. Um, so I started learning more. And the majority of what I did was actually self-taught. Um, so, you know, YouTube, uh, Google, like there are great resources out there to learn just at home on your own time for, for not very much money at all. Um, later on, I decided to get my master's because I wanted to become more of an expert in this realm. And I actually joined Checkpoint uh, about five and a half years ago now um, in, in 2017. And I joined Checkpoint in an entry-level program. So this is a really unique program because I actually had the pleasure of getting to spend uh, three months in Israel at our global headquarters. I got to learn from our, you know, our best and brightest in R&D. And then I came back as an associate. So if you kind of think back um, or if you think about kind of how Europe does it, uh, to be quite honest now, and how we used to do it quite, uh, you know, in the United States with these apprenticeships, it's the mm -hmm. same idea. You work under someone else that is, you know, essentially a master or an expert in the field. So I did that for, for about a year at Checkpoint and then later on was promoted into the full title and then moved into my architect role now. Uh, but what I would say to really address your question is anyone that, you know, there's kind of different levels here. If you want to learn just to keep yourself safe, maybe you don't have a strong interest in technology or cybersecurity. You just want to keep yourself, your family, your kids, et cetera, safe. Uh, there's so many resources online. You can go to blog.checkpoint.com. You can go to cybertalks.org. We have so many resources to learn some of the basics of cybersecurity and keeping yourself uh, safe online. Um, and then second, if you are if you are a fellow nerd, if you do want to learn more about this stuff, uh, we have a variety of programs available. Again, I said I, I self-taught quite a bit. Uh, so a lot of YouTube and Google uh, training. I, I like to say that I have a, a degree from YouTube University. Um, but you can also go to some of the academic uh, institutions of the world. You know, there are undergraduate or technical degree programs. Uh, Checkpoint's actually doing something really unique in this. Um, and if you remember, I said, you know, back in the 90s, you know, Gil Schwed essentially created this industry uh, with, with the invention of the first firewall. Uh, so we we at Checkpoint have an obligation or we feel the obligation to, to address you know, the, uh, what we'll call a talent gap in cybersecurity. And we're doing that by enabling universities, technical schools, and, and hopefully soon high schools and middle schools as well to, um, to deliver content that is you know, cybersecurity information and training that will actually land them a job when they graduate uh, at no cost. 
So, so the resources are, are really out there. You just need the drive and determination to go and learn. And to, uh, to be quite honest, just do a quick Google search. Oh, that's beautiful, man. That's absolutely right. You know, you, you just said at the tail end there, basically, I'll put it in my word, grit, right? Just yes. get on it. Get it done. Um, grit, there was a wonderful study. Ah, I wish I could remember who it was, but a beautiful study in a, in a university looking at, you know, what are the factors that determine success, one of these things, right? And um, it wasn't IQ. It wasn't the degree. It wasn't the school you went to. All these things, of course, are tremendously helpful, obviously. Um, but in actual fact, there was one thread, and it was grit. It was determination to get it done. There are currently, listen to this area, which goes up and up, 800,000 jobs available in the United right. States alone within the cybersecurity industry. There are 4.5 million globally. It's like you could trip up and fall into a career in cybersecurity and do great, right? Yeah, yeah. And and there are and there are beautiful Hugh. You're a decent guy too, man. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about working with you know technologists that are let's say powerful because you understand how this world works. And yet you, Dan Wiley, these kinds of people on a mission to, you know, because keep the internet safe. Because I liken it to this, right? So in the year 1440, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. This was the first time in human history that we had the mass distribution of knowledge. Prior to that point, most people couldn't read. They were illiterate. Back to my Microsoft Word example to today being you have to be literate in, in cybersecurity. But no one could read back then. 200 years later, we get the Great Renaissance. So for the first time, making human beings, or, or rather making available the knowledge of humanity to all human beings through the printing press, they wouldn't be in America without it because of uh, Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, right? That was a pivotal piece of paper that really helped the, uh, the Revolutionary War uh, over here, or the War of Independence over here. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you get that. And then, then all of a sudden, this is what Newton meant by, I stand on the shoulders of giants. What he meant was, other people have gone and done this incredible work and I can read about it. Now, with the internet, you, where's the next genius? Where's the next Einstein? So it could be some kid in India that we've never even heard of right now, mm -hmm. right? And as, as they come online, your role, my role, is we're trying to protect that next Einstein, inventing the next, I don't know, let's save the planet technology from being stolen, disrupted, hurt, or anything like that. And so look, with 800,000 jobs in the United States alone, and, and, and look, Aaron, I'm sure I can speak for you too. You can reach out to us online, find us Absolutely. on LinkedIn and, and figure out how you can find some kind of mentor, somebody to help you, point in the right direction. We'll help you are helped and we need you because there's 100,000 jobs available. <laughs> so, so please come, actually, uh, is what we're trying to say to, um, to the community there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, whether you're, you know, a technologist right now, or maybe you're a student that's watching this right now, or a parent, you know, I'm not saying to, uh, I would never want to force anybody into a, into a uh, specific career. But, you know, if your kid or somebody you know, or yourself, if you, if you find this interesting, if you want to help do good uh, across the world, you know, cybersecurity is be quite honest, it's job security for life. It truly really mm -hmm. is because we are needed. We are not, you know, for us, we're, we're so multifaceted. We have to think about multiple, you know, points of entry or what we call vectors. So, you know, yes, there's network level security. Again, going back to securing, you know, the basic uh, fundamentals of the internet. Uh, there's the endpoint, there's the mobile device, there's, you know, cloud solutions these days. There's email security, there's security for, you know, IoT or internet of everything or, or uh, internet of things. Um, devices. So there are so many different facets of it, and that's really what makes the 
this, you know, this career so interesting is that it's, it's one, it changes every single day. So just in the time that Eddie and I have been talking, you know, both of us are, you know, essentially outdated or we're, we're behind. We're going to have to go and catch up and look at the latest threat feeds and understand what's happening in the world. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very exciting career and strongly encourage anyone that's interested in it to start pursuing that path. And just like Eddie, you know, it's pretty easy to find me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, it's just Aaron Rose. And, and I say, you know, because of the, your, to your point of it changing so fast, because of that, that, that rapid change, once you've jumped in and survived for six months, you're up to speed because it's all new at that point. <laughs> six months yeah. into this game, it's like, yeah, we're dealing with completely different things. Um, right. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's really cool, man. That's, I, I, I think that's very exciting. And um, let's also not forget, if you, are, if you are slightly scared or intimidated by, let's say, some of the vocabulary that Aaron uses, it sounds very technical, you can always start in the sales and marketing side, right, which is where, you know, I grew up. I'm, I'm a conversationalist. I talk about cybersecurity with people. I explain things, right? Um, you know, Aaron's the engineer. He get, and we get paired up in organizations, right? You pair people like me and Aaron up so that we can go sit down with organizations and individuals and have conversation to, um, you know, to keep them secure. All right, let's, let's, um, let's wrap on cyber hygiene. We've got about five minutes sure. left. So I want to talk about some good cyber hygiene. We mentioned a few things with phishing. Here's one. This is what I was going to mention earlier. If you are dealing with money, so if you are dealing with money at a corporation, let's say you're an accounts receivable or you're at home and you're dealing with banking, if you get something from an email that says, you know, reset your password or go to your bank, blah, 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 don't reply to the email. Go to the bank. That's, that's, a, that's a really safe way to ensure that you're not going to get fished. And, or don't click reply. Click forward and type in the known trusted email address of the person at the bank you've always been dealing with. And then if there's what we call a man in the middle attack, that will completely obfuscate that person out of the conversation. So there's a really easy tip, right? You know, don't reply to the emails. Just click Eddie, forward. I think you're actually pointing out something, you know, pretty interesting is, and I don't want to call it, um, I, the, at first I want to call it common sense, and I don't think that's the appropriate term. I would call it your gut feeling. Trust mm. your gut. You know, we're all told that, you know, our entire lives. So if something seems abnormal, you know, why would my bank be reaching out to me in this manner? Or mm. why would my CFO or, or my, my boss be reaching out to me in this way? Guess what? You probably have their phone number, their trusted phone number. You've got it yeah. saved. You've been working with them for, you know, however long. Pick up the phone and give them a call. Shoot them a text message, or, or like you said, go into the bank. You know, always rely on. You know, if something feels off, always rely on your. You know, that gut feeling. Take that gut feeling and rely on something that's trusted, that's known to be. You know, I know that I'm talking to this person. Just like if Eddie sent me an email and he asked me to do something kind of odd, maybe he's stuck in an airport, and needs me to send him some money or something like that. I'm probably going to give him a call before I send him a thousand dollars on PayPal. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're right to put it like that, my friend. And it's because it's, it's a, it, when people are victimized on those kinds of things, in hindsight, we always feel foolish. That, and, right. it's, and it's, you know, they, and this is what stops people, the duress, the stress of the technology, and then the feeling foolish afterwards, because it's so obvious that that Nigerian prince already stuck at the airport, whatever it might be. It's like, ah, you know, they got me. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen, I'll say this. If somebody who was sophisticated enough wanted to get me, and I'm pretty buttoned down, right? I work for the 900-pound gorilla in the cybersecurity world. If somebody was really determined and they were sophisticated, they'd get me. So let, know that. Know that the experts can be gotten. 
You know, I mean, look, if it's a nation state, certainly uh, not that I would be targeted, but understand that. Don't feel embarrassment. Don't feel, put your hand up, ask questions. It, it, it's the black box of technology. It's super scary, right? Ask questions, you know, and um, you know, people will be glad to uh, educate you um, into, uh, into a, a, a secure future. Um, I did, the only other thing that I haven't spoken about yet that I wanted to mention was disaster recovery plans. 60 seconds then, let's do this. So, so what a disaster recovery planning is, if, if there is an event, what do we do? Now listen, there was a great study by a West Point cadet. He wrote a paper called Drilling Versus Training. Really interesting. So at the Battle of Gettysburg, the most decisive battle in US history, let's say, it turned out that 90% of soldiers didn't even discharge their weapon didn't even pull the trigger. This is because they're 14 year old farm boys, obviously, right? I mean, poor kids. And we know this by the 18,000 fully loaded muskets next to the fallen soldiers' bodies, okay? Because we can count the bullets and realize they didn't even pull the trigger. Okay, fast forward to the Vietnam War, where the US military had essentially um, turned uh, men into soldiers. And 90% uh, of the military completely reversed that trend. 90% of soldiers ran into a hellfire of bullets and engaged in battle. How? Not training, drilling. So, so, so what we have to do is we have to go through the scenarios of, you. let's pretend you just clicked on a phishing link, the system is now being compromised, what do you do? Most people don't know the answer to that question. And that is a fault of not only the CISO, but the CEO and the entire organization to say, hey, we need to drill in these kinds of things because it's so important today. We don't want your social security number being leaked out of our organization. We don't want your paycheck going to somebody else. You know, we don't want hurt. And so it's so important that let's drill. We do fire drills once a year an actual drill, exactly. so we can do a digital drill once a month. All right, my friends, that's exactly. that I think is a beautiful spot to stop on. What do you think, Aaron? Absolutely, it was a great analogy. Thank okay. you, Eddie. Happy holidays to all. Thank you for tuning into And Security For All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host Seamless Podcast, started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.